where all those uh, in various classes and ages get promoted up to the next class. The, the children's ministry, by the way, is starting a new uh, work on Sunday morning uh, using the Gospel Project curriculum, and, and so uh, I'm excited to see uh, what they're doing, and uh, they're going to have an, uh, an assembly time at the beginning of their uh, class. And uh, you can go up and upstairs in one of the rooms. They did a, a tremendous job decorating there, and uh, they're excited. And uh, most of us don't get excited about promotion Sunday anymore. We're afraid we might actually get promoted. <laughs> you know, somewhere along the way of maybe college, we decide that's not a good idea anymore uh, because the alternative doesn't look so good uh, in promotion. But I tell you, it's. It's good to do that, uh, to see people get promoted. Um, Being here together, worshiping, singing what we've just sung. It is so good to be able to do that. To be with God's people and by testimony, simply by being here and singing, our God reigns is counter to the society we live in. We are saying that God exists. He rules. He he is worthy of worship. He is active in our life. Therefore, we are active in meeting with others to worship Him. We are making a testimony of faith just by being here and singing what we've just sung in our hearts and our minds opening up the Word of God and saying that it is relevant to our life, I need to hear God speak to me. I can't help but think that there are many that cannot do that. For whatever reasons, there are some who are physically unable. They, they can't leave the house uh, because of the, the, the age and the weaknesses of their body. There are some who would cry just to be able to be here where you are right now. And they miss it. Some are removed physically in various places around the world, and they cannot be here among us to be able to do what we've just done. We're going to look today at Paul, who is in his life shut in. He's shut in. He's not able to get together with gatherings of people anymore. That is a part of his past. And on this life, there is no more future expectation of gathering with God's people. Do you understand that there could be a time in your life where physically you're not able to do what you're just doing right now? And the only expectation of gathering with God's people again will be in heaven? But yet you still live on this side. We don't think about that, do we? We don't, uh, we don't go there. I encourage you to visit some in our body who cannot be here. Are not able to be here. It's worth encouraging them. Sharing with them to say, you can't come with us to us, but we will go to you. Paul is exactly in that boat. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 through 22, it is the last words of Paul. 
This is the last letter that he writes. We're going to look at Titus, uh, Lord willing, uh, in the weeks ahead. But 2 Timothy comes after Titus. Um, He writes this letter to his beloved son. And we get a snapshot of loneliness. A picture of difficulty. We read about Paul and we think about these guys who are involved in ministry and we think everything goes well for them and we know that's not the case. And it's not just that they go through hard times, they go through loneliness. It is at the end of his life and for most of us, if you realize that if you make it without a premature death, you, you go to a ripe old age, for many who get to that point, it is lonely. Only ones around you are those who are younger than you. And all the ones you've known all your life have already preceded you in death. And and unless you spent your life investing in the younger, which church we must do, then when you come to the end of your life, there's no one around. And there's more people in heaven than they are on earth. And for those that were walking the earth with Paul, for whatever reasons, they were not able to be with him. Perhaps you may have forgotten, but as Timothy or as Timothy receives this and Paul writes this, Paul is writing from a dark, damp dungeon. We may forget this. So for those of you who metaphorically feel like you're in a dungeon, I think this has sunlight in this scripture for you to hold on to. And so with this thought of mind, I, I want to share with you some timeless truths that will guide us, not in the dungeons in our life alone, but in the busyness of life as well. And so, as we read this together, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 9, all leading up to this in chapter 4, he is, he is saying his... His goodbyes. He is saying, my time is at hand. He realizes he is going to die soon. So, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. And that is his main point. Everything else is supporting that. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Nisphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill 
at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You may be seated. So the main point on this last bit is very pragmatic, very practical. Do your best to come to me soon. And then he argues why. Before we go into the text, I just want you to hear that that plea and associate with some of your brothers and sisters in Christ who may not be able to be here. For whatever reasons. Just hear that plea. As they may. If they could say it to you now. Do your best to come to me soon. And then he lists out. Various people in his life. And there seems to be this theme. Among them of either faithful or unfaithful. Originally was going to look at a few of these. Uh, characters and look at it in roles of ministry and and looking at three uh, qualifying roles of ministry. But instead, I'm, I'm changing tax a little bit, so just disregard the title. Uh, there are a lot more characters in there we could talk about. But there's a couple of timeless truths I want you to get that's throughout all that. And so we're going to look at these characters, but understand this one simple thing. Our faithfulness is fueled by our love. Our faithfulness is fueled by our love. I had one English professor that had on the very first day on the written on the chalkboard, this is, you know, back in the Stone Ages, uh, chalkboards, and he had written on there, discipline is passion. Discipline is passion. We could say the same thing. To say our faithfulness is fueled by our love. And so as we look at each one of these characteristic characters, we're going to see some of that. Of how there is faithfulness and there is unfaithfulness. But underneath it all is love. Love. And so we come to the very first character in verse 10. He says, Timothy, I need you here. Later on, as we see, he says, come before winter. Verse 21, do your best to come before winter. Come soon. Uh, that means he's probably writing in spring or early summer. And there's a couple reasons uh, why he wants them to come before winter. Because one is, is the traveling season in the Mediterranean. Uh, you did not travel between November and March because of the uh, storms. So come before winter. The second, hey, you know what? I'm missing a cloak. <laughs> and it's going to get cold. It's already cold here. Bring a coat. And Timothy, I need you. I just need your presence. Let me share a little bit why. Demas. You remember Demas? We have some snapshots of Demas uh, earlier in the New Testament. One is found in the Colossians chapter 4, verse 10 through 15. Again, another prison epistle. Uh, he writes a letter from prison to the, the folks in Colossae. And he, he writes this. And let me just kind of share this with you. Colossians 4, verse 10 through 15. Again, list out several characters, characters with them. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, 
concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggle on your behalf in his prayers, that he may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Demas. So evidently this is one of the uh, co-workers, as Paul calls them, a fellow worker in the kingdom of God. Remember, Paul is in prison in Colossians. Demas is with them, along with uh, Luke, Mark, uh, Epaphras, uh, and several others that's mentioned here. So Demas was part of the ministry team with Paul. Now, can you imagine that? You've got Paul. You've got Luke. Uh, they're hanging out with you. Uh, Mark evidently was, was with them at one point. He sends them out. Epaphras. This is his ministry team. They are working with Paul in some difficult situations in prison. And, and here he is. Uh, we see this again in Philemon. Philemon, verse 23 and 24. Epaphras, my fellow servant, our fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So Demas was one who had seen difficult days with Paul, worked with them, went on journeys with them, along with Luke and Epaphras and, and Mark and these other fellows, working with them. And so Demas was one who have, has gone along with Paul for some time. But, at the end of Paul's life, he says to Timothy, Come, for Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Why, Demas, did you desert? Notice the word deserting. He didn't just leave. There was a sense of betrayal and a sense of abandonment in Paul's life. Why? For Demas, in love with the present world has deserted. And love with the present world. This just screams warning to all of us. Demas had pretty good character. He is hanging around with pretty good folks in his life. I mean, he watched Colossians being written. Have you read Colossians? That's good stuff. It'll change your life. He watched it being right, being written. He saw this. And yet, whatever was going on in his heart and mind, there was starting out evidently a subtle shift of allegiance in his heart that had something to do with his love. At some point, he loved Christ. He loved Paul. He loved Mark. He loved these with him. But somewhere along the way, it started very subtly. No one even recognized it. But somewhere along the way, he loved something about the present world. We don't know what exactly. It could be any number of things. But whatever it was, drew him back to Thessalonica. For one thing, he wasn't in prison in Thessalonica. That would seem like a plus. 
We don't know what it was, but the present world, the sum of things seen and temporal appealing to us in some form. It could be the form of wealth. It could be the form of earthly loves. It could be the form of material advantage. It could be the form of fame. It could be the form of some intellectual pursuits, uh, some recognition. But whatever it is, it is, it is transient. It is seen. It is temporal. Somehow we are to live this world with our hearts in heaven, but our hands busy in this present world. And that can be a challenge. One of the charges in regards to youth ministry the last couple of years was, was beware, make sure we have no worldliness in our ministry. And I shared this passage out to say, look, this can happen. But worldliness isn't just fame. Worldliness isn't just music. And celebrities of this world. Worldliness is not just the styles of clothing. Worldliness is much more subtle than that. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 through 17 says this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For if anyone loves the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is how John describes it. It could simply be that Demas just wanted a more comfortable life. <laughs> I, uh, this past week, we've been living without AC and the upstairs. Um, went out right before we went on vacation, and I thought, well, we're on vacation. Let's just go. Come back, maybe the weather will be cooler was for a little while. And then you just walk up the stairs and you feel the heat impressing you and you think, oh, I gotta sleep in this. So um, you know, seeking out AC repair and um, I had my mind, oh, okay, let me prepare myself mentally for a two, three thousand dollars you know, expense. I asked the guy and he just laughed. <laughs> yeah. So he said, no, it's, it's going to be more like four to eight. And then I get the bids, and, and it was more like eight to ten. <laughs> Three options. Called someone else. Thankfully, it was more like five. And so at the same time, I'm trying to make a decision about uh, going to East Asia. <laughs> and my wife going. Um, this all comes on the same day. I sought God's word and God's word was faithful in speaking to my heart. But along the way, I, I had scheduled for me to, to talk with Chad and Amanda. Chad and Amanda Hinton. You know, the ones that are serving from our church in the Middle East. And so I remember sharing with them, encouraged them on their very first mission trip when they went somewhere and they were struggling about having Amanda go because of the financial costs. And I said, look, and I told them, I said, don't worry about the money. If the money's the problem, God can take care of that. They reminded me of that. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, you know, here's the deal. The AC went out. And they looked at me and said, so? We've been living with that AC and we're in the Middle East. A picture again once more of what exactly does it mean to love this present world? We're not just talking about, you know what, I want more money. Or, 
you know what, I, I want to just do what I want to do. I don't want some guy telling me not to live a different lifestyle. You know, you know what, it could be more just like, I want to go where there's air conditioning. I want to, I, you see, I, I love the present world. I love the comforts of it. It's not just whether or not I'm going somewhere where folks are going to give me freedom or versus put me in prison. It's not somewhere where someone's going to say, you know what, I'm going to applaud you for being a believer versus someone, I'm going to beat you, I hate you because you're a Christian. It's not just that. It could be simply that this is more comfortable. We don't know what the specific focus was of Dima's love. But I just want to caution you to say our hearts can shift ever so subtly away from loving Jesus to loving things of this world that makes it more comfortable. And every once in a while there will be a check in our life. To say, what do you love more? Listen, if God's going to do it with Abraham and say, do you love me more than your son, Isaac? Don't you think God's going to do it in our life? <laughs> when those times come, the question is, do we love God more? And so what I just want to challenge you with is, is that you be aware, you can love the present world too much. You can be enamored by celebrity, by fame, by money, by wealth, by influence, by comforts. You can be enamored to the point where it will take your heart away from Christ. You can hang out with Paul. You can write Paul, write the book of Colossians. You can watch him write Philemon. You could be in prison and, and giving him water and helping him. You could do all that. You could be on one of the most successful ministry teams in history and yet have your heart stolen. Slowly, subtly taken. What one of our chief concerns must be is do I love Jesus? Am I once again being renewed with pictures of who Christ is? You know why this is so important? This time when we sing about the love of Christ, when we sing about who God is, the greatness of His name, because it is a way for me to open up my hearts and eyes away from the course of TV, the course of this world, and say... I need, once again, to love Christ. I need you, collectively. And you need us, collectively, to have people in our lives to share with us who Christ is. Do you understand that? I need the Word of God to teach me who Christ is. Because every day, there will be a subtle shift of your heart, one way or the other, you don't go to bed with a neutral state. Do you understand? You don't go to bed with a neutral state. Every day, your heart is going to shift more either in love of Christ or more in love of the world. And the problem is that they cannot exist, coexist in the same heart. Jesus said it this way, if you, you cannot love God and money. No one can serve two masters. I had someone told me, asked me, or to bring out this, this understanding to help me um, just click it in my brain. If I have anything, any possession, that I'm not willing to give up, then I do not own it, it owns me. 
If I do not have any possession that I'm not willing to give up, then I'm not owning it. It's owning me. Because here's the reality. You're going to give it up. You know, it, when the game Monopoly ends, everything goes in that box. You know? You're, you're going to give it up. And so here is Dima, and his lack of faithfulness is tied with his love. He no longer loves Christ more than this present world. And so it shows in his actions. Our faithfulness is fueled by our love. If we have little understanding of God's love, then will there be little power for faithfulness? Jesus, in accounting a, a story with, with, with Simon and, and a, a sinning woman, a, a known sinner, who came and just washed Jesus' feet with her tears and, and perfume and, and watching the scorn on the Pharisee Simon's face and, and just watching this interaction, Jesus shared a story. He said, you know, one man owned a, a, a master uh, of just a few amount of dollars, but denarii, but was more than what he could pay. And another man owed a great deal, but he couldn't pay it either. But the master forgave them both. And he asked Simon, which one do you think loved the master more? And Simon responded, well, I guess the one who had been forgiven the most. And Jesus said, you've responded correctly. And went to the sinning woman and said, woman, your sins are forgiven. What does that tell me? If I want to love God more, it is closely connected to know how much God has done for me to be aware of God's forgiveness. I grew up in a church. I grew up in a pastor's home, and you think, well, what kind of trouble could I have gotten into? You know, I wasn't really big into known sins. But here's something I've realized. As I've grown up and I look back on that day, I can say it was a flat out miracle what God did in my life and is doing in my life. It's not because of God has rescued me from all these known scandalous sins. It's to realize the sin in my own heart, how much it's in me. And to be constantly aware of my sin before Christ and say, God, forgive me. And to know that he does just burst a new love in my heart. That's why the Word of God is effective, because it does that in my life. It exposes sin in my heart and life. That's why brothers and sisters in Christ can, are so helpful, because they help me to see my own sin in my life. And from that birth, love. Our faithfulness is fueled by our love. Demas fell in love more with the present world than he did Christ. So we need to be aware of those of us who are trying to be cultural embracing Beware, we can love the world and lose our love for Christ. Now, he goes on to list out these others. Some folks we know very little about. Crescens is going to Galatia. Evidently, this was uh, Crescens had been sent by Paul uh, for work in Galatia. Titus was sent to Dalmatia. Again, uh, the circumstances of life, Paul was instrumental in this to say, you guys, you're going to have to go. You've got ministry assignments. You need to be in other places. 
uh, verse 11. Luke alone is with me. I always wonder if Luke was a little bummed out about that. <laughs> Only Luke's with me. You know, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, but Luke has been faithful to Paul. He had been with Paul for years. He first joined with, with Paul in Troas as they went into the very first journey into uh, Europe. He remained with them at Philippi. And he stayed at Philippi while Paul traveled into the Greece and then rejoins Paul back in Philippi on his return. He was with Paul when he went back to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he was arrested and was sent to Caesarea in holding. And Luke walked and journeyed with them. And he went with them on the ship. You remember that ship from Caesarea to Rome that got shipwrecked? Luke was there. He was, he's walking with them. Uh, and he was in Rome for the very first imprisonment. Evidently, he was set free. And there was a time period where Paul was, was free. Evidently, Luke was with him until he gets arrested again in Troas. Luke had been faithful. Luke is the very reason why we have the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. And so he has been faithful and is fueled by his love of Christ, the love of Paul. And then you get Mark. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Now, those of you who are students of Acts know that there's a great lesson right here. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 through 40. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark, which was Barnabas' cousin. But Paul thought it best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So evidently, something happened in Mark's life where he was maybe like Demas. He was on a missionary journey, saw how difficult it was, and said, you know what, I don't really want to continue this journey. I want to go back home. I want to go back home. And so Paul remembered that. He said, you know what, Mark's a quitter. Mark, Mark has, uh, for whatever reason, loved that world, loved the world he came from more than the journey with us. And so he gave up on him. Barnabas did not. There, there said in verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus. Sometimes it's somewhat encouraging for me to know that sharp disagreements occurred in Acts. Between Paul and Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas was the son of encouragement. That was his nickname. And yet there's a sharp disagreement between these two. But it had to do with another person, Mark. Should we give him a second chance? Paul said no. But here we see a restoration has taken place. That's encouraging to me. Because maybe as I talk about Demas, you think, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of like Demas. Is there any hope for me? And I would say, well, look at Mark. Mark has gone that way. And there is power and repentance because it trusts in the grace of God. You may be like Demas and you may be th- flirting with this and you think, you know what, I, I'm, I just, I don't want to continue. It's just uncomfortable. It's difficult. But listen, there can be a new love birthed in your heart where Mark has learned it's okay. 
It's okay. Things are going to get tough. It's going to get hard. But grace is great. And Jesus is greater. And I love Christ more each day. And he goes on. Verse 12, Tychicus, I've sent to Ephesus. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak. It was, it was kind of like a poncho-like uh, garment that I left with Carpus at Troas. He was probably arrested there and didn't have time to gather his things. But it's, it's kind of revealing to me that he doesn't have money to buy a new cloak. And he says to Timothy, also the books and above all the parchments. We don't know what's in the books and the parchments, but it's a pretty good bet he's talking about scriptures. <laughs> bring me the cloak. Bring me the scriptures. Let me think. Let me read God's word. Let me meditate on this. Verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We don't know for sure, but he could very well be the same Alexander mentioned in 1 Timothy 1, verse 19 and 20, when he was giving church discipline. He says in that passage, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over Satan, that they may learn not to blasphemy. We don't know exactly, but what if it was the same Alexander that was put out of the church through Paul and Timothy's work? It could very well be that that Alexander went to find Paul in Troas and caused trouble there. If that's the case, then it could very well be that the start of Paul's death and this imprisonment started with a professing believer that had rejected Christ at some point. But look at his his response. Verse 14, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's a little hint right there of what Paul's thinking. We're going to look at that in just a little bit more. He says, I'm going to just leave it to God. He's done great harm, but I'm leaving it to God. But beware, beware, Timothy. Things are not right. If you come and get my cloak and trust. Beware, he's going to be there. Watch out. Verse 15, for he strongly opposed our message. Verse 16, we're going to, we're going to turn a corner here. I'm going to talk a little bit about Paul and his hope. And here's the second timeless truth I want you to understand. Our love for God is fueled by the faithfulness of Christ. Our faithfulness is fueled by our love. But our love is fueled by the faithfulness of Christ. Notice what Paul says. Verse 16. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Timothy, come to me soon. Because at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. I was presented and no one walked with me. I was all alone. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul is making a very conscious choice not to be resentful. Not to be resentful. Do you know how hard that is sometimes? To choose, I'm not going to resent them. Though they've hurt me, they've betrayed me. Maybe they weren't there when I thought they should be there. Listen, that's going to happen in our church. 
Doesn't that happen? I thought they'd be there. They weren't there. So Paul is making a conscious choice. I'm not going to resent them. Let it instead not be charged against them. Who's he sounding like? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Sounding very Christ-like here. Sounds like Stephen as he's getting stoned. How could he do that? Because his faithfulness is not fueled by his companions. God will use the companions, but his faithfulness is not dependent on whether or not someone's going to stand with him in times of trial. One of the reasons sometimes we get up in arms in relationships and we get so devastated is because our expectations on our mates, on our children, on our parents, on our church members is too great. We expect them to do only what Jesus can do. And when they do not do it, we get discouraged. Here's a, here's a fine line here. But the church is not Jesus. Yes, we're to be the body of Christ. We're to be an expression of Christ. We're to be the bride of Christ. But when it's all said and done, Christ is Christ and we are not. And sometimes we can put on expectations on church that only Christ can do. Take Paul. I mean, doesn't the scripture say that we are to be with those who are in prison? Didn't Jesus talk about that? Feed those who are in prison? Visit them? No one's visiting Paul. And what does Paul do? He makes a conscious choice. I'm not going to resent them. Instead, let it not be charged against them. Because, verse 17, I'm fueled by something else. Listen, for those who are shut in, one of the things I share with them is Christ is there. Christ has not given up on them. Because when it's all said and done, their hope is not in green pines. Their hope is in Jesus. And so, look at how he says this. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Alright, so I want you to notice the tense of the verb here. Past tense. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. I want you to understand he's talking about the past. God has been faithful in the past. And we, I don't believe he's really talking about a literal lion's mouth. Okay? I, I think that he's perhaps alluding to Psalm 22, verse 19 through 21, when he says this. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from my from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so, he says, look, this has happened, but my God has been there. He's been faithful to me, and I love him because of his faithfulness to me. So, <laughs> I can't help but just think of the irony of this. Paul is probably chained He's in a dark, cold hole that some people think that is just a few blocks away from where the Vatican is now. And if that's true, you can go in there, not many people visit, and you can see a little grate that allows a few rays of sunlight to come through. He is sore. He bears the scars of whippings. Bones that have been broken through the very stonings and the beatings. 
It probably aches for him when he wakes up, especially when you're sleeping on the rock. And he looks at story after story, event after event of one persecution after another. He's chained and looks dismal in front of him. And yet he says this. The Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Well, Paul, if that's true, why are you still in the dungeon? Paul says, you misunderstand me. I'm not talking about being rescued from prison. I'm not talking about being rescued from having freedoms restricted. I'm not talking about being rescued from persecutions. Notice what he says. I've been rescued so that the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He says, what I want to do most, I'm still allowed to do. God has rescued me to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to those who have not heard. (laughs) That's Paul's aim in life. Do you have an aim that no human being can steal from you? Do you have a goal in life that no thing in life can endanger it? Listen, if your goal is some physical feat, that can be taken from you just like that. I was talking with one of my children about that. They were playing a video game and had uh, accumulated all these levels in it and spent all this time doing it. And then, and then, uh, then Canaan happens to it. <laughs> so it's, it's been Canaanized. And so the game has to be totally reset and and I'm thinking, you know, I just kind of took a little moment, not that she's going to get it, and say, you know what? Is it really worth all that time, energy, emotion put into it when it can be taken just like that? I can say the same thing about most anything in our life, can I? Are we, are we really going to say that our life is about these things, even our family, and it can be taken just like that? Paul is saying, you know what? All these things are trying to endanger, trying to, to remove the, the opportunity from sharing the gospel. It cannot be removed. God has rescued me that, so that I might fully proclaim the message and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He has rescued me. And notice verse 18 how he argues this. He has rescued me, verse 18, therefore the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. So now he's not talking about the past, he's talking about the future. Because God has done this in the past, he will continue to do this in the future. What on earth can we say that about? Because it's been done in the past, they will keep on doing it in the future? Can I say, well, my heart has always beat in the past, therefore it will always beat. We can't say that. We can't even say, the sun has always risen, therefore it will always rise. We can't even say that. Yet Paul says, God has always rescued me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Wow. Mount Rushmore is a fantastic monument. It's incredible to go out and see just how huge Mount Rushmore is uh, in in South Dakota, the Black Hills. Uh, Many years ago, I was able to see it and it just blew me away. someone, Someone carved that? In a mountain, 60 feet height of these faces of Mount Rushmore. Done by a godson, Borgolom. I don't know how to say his name. And his son, Lincoln. 
60-foot sculptures of, of Washington, Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. Began in 1927. The faces were complete between 1934 and 39. Gutson died in 1941. His son was going to carry it on. You see, what you don't realize is that the original vision was that the sculptures were to be from head to waist. You go there now, there's no waist. Just heads. Because the fact of the matter is that these brilliant guys and all the workforce of America in this, this era and that time and using the Great Depression forces and all that still could not make it happen. It ran out of funds and it ran out of lives. Incredible monument it is. It is an unfinished monument. Here's the great news. As we read this passage... Every one of you is a monument of the grace of God to the glory of God. And there is a sufficient life behind you. There are sufficient funds in your life. And you may look at your life and say, God, I'm so selfish. I've got all this sin in my life. I am so susceptible to failure. God, I don't know if I can ever be for your glory. I mess things up continually. Paul is the same way. But Paul says, God has rescued me and he will rescue me from every evil deed. So let me just bring out another ironic bit here. He says, do your best to come before winter. We don't really know if Paul was alive. Time winter came. It may be Timothy got this letter. But there was no one to whom to give the cloak to. It's possible. Regardless, we know that Paul died. (laughs) And we know that Paul died by order of Nero of beheading. And I'll read this passage. And it says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. Paul, I guess you had poor hope. Listen, the death of a believer by an unbelieving person is no failure. It's no failure. What would have been the failure in Paul's life was for him to say, Christ isn't worth it. His hope is not enough. His love is not great enough. His wisdom is not sufficient. His power is feeble. I cannot withstand an execution order. I stop now. What was the point of the evil Nero and all the others in his life? The point was for Paul to shut up. To be quiet. To no longer profess Jesus. That was the goal. And Paul says, it's never going to happen. I'm going to keep on talking. I'm going to keep on sharing. And if you have to remove the head from me, so be it. But this is going to keep on talking. And the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed so that I might proclaim to the Gentiles the message. To Him be glory forever and ever. Is that... Sound familiar? The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heaven and kingdom to him. Be the glory forever and ever. 
Have you heard that before? How about this? Jesus taught us to say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And keep us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Paul had took the lessons that Jesus taught him, prayed him in his life, and used those prayers and said, I am praying with faith that God's going to keep me from evil. So therefore, I can say, and I'll write it down, Timothy, the Lord's going to do it. I pray the Lord will keep me from evil, and the Lord will do it. He's done it so far. He's going to keep on doing it. And bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Did you know that this is the only place in Scripture where it's titled heavenly kingdom? Nowhere else. It talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. But you're not going to find heavenly kingdom. Why is that? Because Paul believes that he is already in the kingdom of God. Do you understand? If Christ is our king, we already are in the kingdom of God. If the spirit of God is in our life, we already are in the kingdom of God and he is reigning through us. But we're not in the heavenly kingdom now, are we? And Paul is saying, I've been in the kingdom of God, but it's about to transfer into a heavenly kingdom. And he's going to bring me safely there. To him be the glory forever and ever. And he goes on and he greets others that are in that area. Priscilla and Quilla, household of Mysteries. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Just incidentally, verse 20. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But verse 20, just mark it down. Evidently, Paul did not heal everybody. Okay, just mark it down. Paul didn't heal everybody. So those who say that if you have enough faith, you will be healed because Paul did all this, then how do you explain verse 20? Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, to Putin's Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The last words. He says individually to Timothy, Lord, the Lord be with your spirit. I pray that as we go, the Holy Spirit is with you. And then he says plural in the next phrase. In other words, I'm talking to Timothy. Now I'm talking to everybody that reads this. Grace to you. May the grace of God come. You see, my love for Christ, your love for Christ is fueled by the faithfulness of God. Canaan is fearless or just flat out naive, whichever one you want to define. When we go to the ocean, it's like he has no real knowledge that a wave could sweep his feet out from underneath him, sweep him out into the seas and never be seen again. That's never crossed his mind once. He'll run right out and a wave will knock him right over. And he gets back up, wipes the water from his eyes, and goes up again. One of the things we try to do, if we can catch him, is we hold his hand. 
we hold his hand. And I go out in the ocean. And I can feel the waves sweeping him out underneath the feet. His feet out from underneath him. And I can feel him being pulled along. He gets back up. His ability to stay out in the ocean isn't resting in so much of his holding my hand, is it? But it's resting in my ability to hold his hand. My love for Christ isn't resting so much in my ability, my reservoir, my thinking. My ability to love God, your ability to love God, is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The fact is that God, whatever storms come my way, your hand is greater than the waves that come in my life that tell me, be quiet. Don't talk about Jesus. It's not worth it. Those are the waves that will come. But his hand, his grace, his faithfulness is greater. I just got to realize that. And see Christ for he is. And let him hold my hand. The sad tragedy is that we stop seeing the worthiness and the greatness of the love of God. And we start seeing the lure of little things relative to Christ. And we start holding on to these little things, treasuring them, caressing them, hoping in them. And when... Things of life comes in and says, don't talk about Christ or else we'll take it away. We say, okay, okay. But when the final wave come called death, I want to be holding on to something greater than death. What are you holding on to? Is it going to outlive your death? And so... As Timothy gets this, Paul writes this. Perhaps Paul hears soldiers walking around, walking by. And there, in this small little prison cell, Paul gets taken. The crippled frame of the man, he looks older than his years. Bruised from the tortures of the past. Scarred from the beatings and the stonings and the shipwreck sitting in the darkness. His hair and beard, the whitest bone. He crouches on the grate. Where a few rays of light are there. No one wants to die alone. Even those most sure of heaven. Not even Paul. Only Luke was nearby. They marched him through the heavy gate. And beyond the stone wall that surrounded Rome, past the pyramid of Cestius, which still stands today, and on to the Ostian Way, toward the sea. Crowds journeying to Rome knew about the rods and the axe that the execution would soon transpire. They had seen such sights before. It happens. It happened the day before. It'll happen again. The manacled prison walking, prisoner walking stiffly Ragged and filthy from the dungeon. Was not ashamed or degraded. The squad of grim-faced soldiers never noticed as they frowned and stared ahead. But there may have been a faint smile 
on the prisoner's face. He is en route. He's en route to the crowning day of his reward. For him to live is Christ. To die is gain. And no axe across his neck would rob him of his triumph or destiny. It would, in fact, initiate it. Let the waves come. God's hand holds still. And so the question is, do we love Christ? Do you know how much Christ loves you? He is faithful to you, even now. Come to him, as a mark might come back, and say, Lord, thank you for your grace and your kindness. I need you. I need you. Let's pray.